Good morning, church. Um, I'm still new here, so uh, Jerome is my name. I'm the Associate Minister here at St Paul's. Um, so <laughs> that's terrible. It's years of getting up for the evening service and leading it. Hi, I'm Jerome. I'm the Associate Minister at... Oh, terrible, terrible, terrible. When I was at another church, not St Paul's, at Christchurch Dingley, I was a student minister there, and in our evening service um, uh, for youth and young adults... I was preaching my final sermon in uh, a series on the book of Jonah. And I love the book of Jonah. We named one of our sons uh, sort of after Jonah, Jonas, a variation. And um, it was at the end of this series, uh, preaching on chapter 4, I sat down and I just sensed there was something, something happening. And sometimes I sense something, I don't a feeling. Uh, sometimes it, I, I think it's just me, but then I looked around and there was something more. Sorry, not very good with the description here, but there was something happening. Vivian was service leading, song leading, and the service was coming to an end. And again, I sensed there was... I, I, I would talk about it in terms of sensing the presence of God very heavily, um, but I sensed it wasn't just me. And my field committee chair, so as a student minister, you have a field committee, a group of people from the church that are there to support, encourage, offer you feedback. Um, my field committee chair comes up to me, this is before the service is about to end, and he's older, wiser, far more years of ministry experience than me, and he seeks my permission, um, because I was the one that preached that night. I can't remember if I was in charge of the service that night, but he was seeking my permission to get up because he sensed something and he asked me if I'd sensed it. I said yes and he asked if he could get up and speak to it. And so he got up and he just encouraged the people. He said he just wanted people to acknowledge God was present and that he thought we should just keep worshipping. And so Vivian continued to sing. And I saw something that I haven't seen uh, again quite like that. And so I saw young people who were who were not given to raising hands or lifting out their arms, I saw them just starting to open up their hands as though they were receiving something or wanting to receive something. I saw young people starting to cry. And at the end of this service, I found myself sitting next to this young man, year 12, and I, I knew him and had been watching his journey. And he was suffering from depression. And for those of you that were here two weeks ago, that was my story. Year 12, suffering depression. And I thought, God had set up this moment. Here it was. I knew this person's story. I knew what they needed to hear. I, if, if, they, if I just had a chance to share with them all the possible pitfalls ahead, and if I could somehow stop their pain, it's like God had set up this moment. And what followed um, in, in that conversation with that young person was significant not only for them, but for me also. I'll share with you later. Last week, last week we were introduced to the miserable comforters, Job's friends, the miserable comforters. And uh, last week Andrew particularly was looking at Eliphaz, one of the miserable comf comforters. Today uh, we're looking at Bildad. So Job's three friends, Job, a man of the greatest man in the East, wealthy, possessions, a wonderful family. But he was also a man who feared God. 
It's called blameless and upright. And this man in a day loses everything. Loses everything. Loses his health. And and some of us get stuck on those first couple of chapters because this interaction between God and the adversary, that's two chapters. Some people want to jump straight to the end of the book and, hey, it is okay in the end. Oh, sorry, I think Andrew already did that spoiler alert. Uh, God blesses Job abundantly, more than before. And, and sometimes that's how people read the book of Job. It's Job, something bad happens, and then it's all good at the end. There are 35 chapters or more sitting there in the middle. And I think that's where the weight of the book goes. I think that's where our focus is supposed to be. Here's a man suffering. And you see, my fear is that not only might I be a miserable comforter if I don't take heed of some of the things that God's teaching us through this book, but I might also become a poor image bearer. Uh, Image bearer, I'm taking us right back to Genesis chapter 1. We were made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. And what is God's glory? It's his beauty. It's his greatness. It's the wonder of who God is. It's his goodness. It's his wisdom. It's all that makes him glorious. And we were made in his image to reflect his glory. All of creation is reflecting his glory. And humans, humanity made in the image of God have a particular purpose in reflecting the glory of God. And here in the book of Job, we can learn from Job what it means to reflect the glory of God. You see, Whenever we, uh, our words, our thoughts, our beliefs, our theology, our understanding of God, of life, whenever it is inconsistent with how things really are, we become poor image bearers. So I want to look very quickly at Bildad's theology, Bildad's understanding of God and life. I want to look at Job's understanding of God and life and just have a little comparison for a moment and see what we might learn. Bildad's theology. Well, in chapter 8, verse 3, this is his first speech. Uh, Very succinctly, he says, Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? To bolster that, in verse 20, he says, Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. And just to give Job an example, in verse 4, being really pastorally sensitive here, Bildad says to Job, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. That was sarcasm, by the way. Uh, When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Uh, Your children were wicked. They died. But hey, Job, there's still hope for you if you just repent and acknowledge that this suffering has all come about because of your sin. Chapter 9, this is uh, Bildad's second speech. There are three speeches, three cycles of speeches. And in chapter 9, verse 5, Bildad goes on to talk about the lot of the wicked. Uh, The lamp of the wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark. 
the lamp beside him goes out and he goes on. This is, this is the life for the wicked. Bildad's theology, God is just. People get what they deserve. God is just, people get what they deserve. In, in Bildad's final speech in Job uh, 25, verses 4 to 6, it's the shortest chapter. It's Job's friends are running out of steam. Job has continued to maintain his innocence in the whole scene. And uh, Bildad, his final um, uh, speech, it's only six verses long. Uh, Zophar doesn't even get a third speech. He's really run out of steam. Um, but here's Bildad, and he says um, to Job, How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of a woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less a mortal who is but a maggot, a human being who is only a worm? The greatest lies are the ones that are half true. When something's an outright lie, you just don't believe it. The problem with Bildad's theology is not what's there, it's what's missing. I mean, there's an element of truth in that. We are but dust. Yet, it would seem to miss everything else, wouldn't it? God knit us together in our mother's womb. We're made in the image of God. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. What is humankind that you are mindful of them? There is the dust and there is the glory. Bildad's theology, no one is pure before God. And, and in this sense, nor are they in a position to have an audience with him, which is what Job is asking for. Job wants to have this out with God. Job wants to know why this is happening. He wants to stand before God and say, God, why? And Bildad's like, oh, no one's pure before God. Now, Job's acknowledged this. The word blameless, we've said, is, it doesn't mean sinless. It doesn't mean perfect. It's more akin to authentic. Job is authentic. He's an authentic person, a genuine person, a person of integrity, seeking to, be, uh, to have authenticity in his relationship with God, with himself, with others. Let's have a look at Job's theology. Job in chapter 9, verse 22, his response, his first response. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. It's, it's all the same. Like It doesn't seem to matter to God. Wicked, righteous, he destroys them all. Job's theology, God is not fair. The wicked and the blameless alike suffer. Job's conclusions about God not being fair or God being unjust might not be completely accurate. But his authenticity, that his, he hasn't got a tight-fisted theology which says life is a certain way. Or if he did, his circumstances, at least he's willing to acknowledge, doesn't seem to correlate with what he once understood. And he's wrestling with this. He's not afraid to wrestle with it. In Job chapter 9, verses 33 to 35, these next passages that, are, that we look at, I'm not going to go into them. I'm tempted to and I'll have to pull myself back and maybe in the next few weeks they'll be looked at more in depthly. But these are some gems in the book of Job. 
I mean, I, I don't read the book of Job like a Jew. I'm a Christian, and therefore I read the Old Testament in light of Christ. That Christ, uh, after he was raised in the book of Luke, tells his disciples that the Old Testament was pointing to him. Listen to Job's insight here. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more, then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job hopes that there could be a mediator, someone to stand between him and God, someone that would enable him to come before God. In Job 19, verses 25 to 27, Job's final response to Bildad. And, and I'm, I'm not just pulling out the good verses, so, well, I am. The verses before this, Job has seen God as the one attacking him. God as the one that's uh, the cause of his suffering. But he says this after he's just had these verses of God being the cause, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, that is, after I'm dead, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job looks for a redeemer, and in the context of this, here's the ironic thing. In one sense, his experience says that this is God allowing this to happen or making this happen. And in the other instance, he believes God himself will be his redeemer, even if it means that after his death, he will, he will be vindicated, that it will be seen that it wasn't his sin that caused all of this. Job's theology Job hopes for a mediator and expresses faith in a redeemer. But what shapes these two men's theology? Job is so prophetic in his understanding, in his searching. What shapes their understanding of God and life? Well, for Bildad, in in chapter 18, verse 4, I think there's something quite telling. You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger, he's talking to Job, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake, or must the rocks be moved from their place? Job, in, in your state, you're just making it worse for yourself. Is the earth to be abandoned for your sake, or must the rocks be moved from their place? The earth and the rocks are seen as permanent and constant things. Should we, here's my understanding of how life is, should we just shift all of that, Job, because your experience doesn't quite fit it? Bildad needs life and God to be fixed constants that are totally comprehensible. That's his safety, that's his need. It's a tight-fisted theology. That, that says we've got it all figured out and if anything that comes to challenge it, I will defend this. Yet Bildad's theology misses out on insights that Job clearly comes to have. What shapes Job's theology? Well, in chapter 26, verse 14, in his final speech to Bildad, he says this, 
And these are but the outer fringe of his works. He's just actually spoken about God's great works, the glory of God, his greatness. And after he's spoken about these great works of God, he said, and these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? Job realises God's greatness cannot be fully comprehended. Thus, life contains some mystery. I see it uh, all around me in our educational systems, in churches. It's everywhere. It's, a, it's almost like we could talk about it in a historical or traditional sense where Greek thought versus Hebrew thought. He, Greek thought went something like this. God or the gods are far, they're transcendent, so far above us, spiritual and not tainted with this physical realm. And, and, but if we apply our minds, we can get our heads around God or the gods. We can get our heads around it. We can understand it. Hebrew thought went like this. God is close to us. He's near. He's made himself known. We know God, but we will never get our heads around him. It, it was different. My nan, uh, she lived with us uh, um, and was living in my parents' home till the day she died. Um, and she was 103. Uh, 2015 is when she passed away. She had much to do with my spiritual formation. She was a woman of integrity. She was a woman who was wise, a woman who was vulnerable, able to share her weaknesses, her mistakes in life so that I could learn. Uh, a woman whom I, I felt free to go and explore faith with, explore the things I didn't understand or didn't make sense. So there was a freedom to say, I don't get this or this doesn't make sense, I'm not sure I believe in this. There came a point in my life where I knew that my knowledge, my information concerning God and my faith had surpassed hers. But I also knew that she was still wiser than me. God is not simply interested in how much we know or how much knowledge we have. God is interested in our transformation from glory to glory that we might reflect the image of who he is. And when our words, our actions, our life, our understanding is inconsistent with who he is, we are poor image bearers. I started up a Bible study group at the cathedral. <laughs> there were two St. Paul's, St. Paul's Cathedral and St. Paul's Caulfield North and possibly White, no, uh, I'm sorry. Um, started up a Bible study group at St. Paul's Cathedral and um, a person comes up to me and they say, uh, it's been a long time since they've been back at a Bible study group um, that the last time they were at a Bible study group and they named an Anglican church, a big Anglican church, which will remain nameless, uh, that they were once at. And when they went along to a Bible study, they started saying something and somebody jumped on them because their theology wasn't right. Sometimes our, we hold on to our theology so tight-fisted. We have all our little camps, who's right and who's wrong. This isn't a sermon about, you know, leading us down some slippery slope to some really liberal theology. It doesn't matter what we think and just whatever we think about God's fine. That's not what I'm saying. 
what I'm saying is there can be a tight-fistedness, a, a way in which people aren't safe to explore, people aren't safe to grieve, people aren't safe to say, this doesn't make sense. I'm so nervous with our children that I think our children know what I believe. Are they safe to explore? Are they safe to express doubt or to express something different to daddy? So this young person, I come down, I sit next to them and I'm just so thankful to God. He's set up this moment. Here I am with all my wisdom. I know what this person's going through. I have all the wisdom, all the things that this person needs. But, but by the grace of God, I, I, I pray a quick prayer quietly. And I say, God, if there's something you want to say, and something does sort of come, it, it, I guess it was the moment where my hands opened up. I, I, I was certain I knew what they needed to hear. And I just sort of opened up, I guess. And in that moment, a different thought came in. I was still pretty confident that my thoughts were better than what was coming in. But anyway, um, because my thoughts had practical application. My thoughts had something to grasp and hold on to. This, what I thought I was receiving seemed, again, like two weeks ago, I said the simple cliche message of God loves you. I just thought, I've got practical application here, got some things for this young person to do to, to stop him from experiencing all this pain. But I went with what I thought might have been God speaking and I said to this young man, uh, I was, I thought I had, I thought I knew what I had to say to you but, but, but there's something else that I sense that God wants me to say to you. God sees you. He knows your pain. And he loves you. He and I were both in tears. We both experienced the transforming presence of God. Our beliefs, our words, our actions, our life are meant to be a display of the glory of God. But when our beliefs or life are inconsistent with reality, when our understanding of God and his ways are inaccurate or intentionally ignored, at best we become poor image bearers and at worst we add to the suffering in this world. When we don't reflect who God is, we will be adding in some way to the suffering in this world. The spotlight is still on the church, the sins of the church, its abuses. Because of our weakness and limits, we will fail to faithfully reflect the glory of God. But God has made a way for us to be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. And the context is worship. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, that's Jesus' glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Why would it be that if we looked into the face of Jesus, why would it be that if we looked and contemplated Jesus' glory, that somehow it's in this context that we would start to be transformed from glory to glory? Because it's in God's presence that we are transformed. It's as we behold his glory, as we see him as he is, it's almost like a natural response to who he is that we reflect his glory back and out to others. Solomon, when he built the temple, said not even the highest heavens can contain God, let alone this house that he's built. And yet in Colossians chapter 1, it says that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell within Jesus. Jesus is the new temple. And it's when we see Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we see the glory of God, his grace, his love, his wisdom. We see it in the cross. We see it in the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I'd encourage you all to make it to that worship workshop. It's a workshop for the people of God. Jesus is the new temple. As we seek to understand and behold the glory of God in Jesus, we are transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Job's authentic pursuit of God meant his assumptions about God and life were allowed to be challenged. And it opened the way for him to see God as mediator and redeemer. May Psalm 27 verse 4 be our prayer. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Amen.